Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians? We're just continuing on in our studies in 1 Corinthians. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll read from verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his word. A number of years ago, I was on a Northern Baptist Association team, a team made up primarily of pastors, and we were doing some work with the Stone Park Church, and we were working in Clocker. Pastor Tom McLaughlin and myself were walking up the, the drive of a certain house. A man opened the window, and he shouted out the window, Clear off! and go and get a proper job. Uh, To him, the service we rendered to God was not only a waste of time, but a neglect of responsibility. What a contrast then to the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said to me, the work of the ministry is the highest, the greatest, and the most glorious calling to which any man can be called. Now, this is Paul's theme in chapter 4, the minister of God, the servant of God. Now, you'll notice that the NIV and the ESV both wrongly entitle this passage the uh, ministry of the apostles or apostles of Christ because Paul doesn't deal specifically with apostles until verse 9. And we know that because in verse 6, he, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos, and we know that Apollos wasn't an, an apostle, he was a servant of God. And what he is doing in this, these first five verses is giving us very important instruction about the, uh, his ministry and the minister of the gospel. And I want you to notice three things this morning. First of all, the description of the minister. Look at verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Here Paul uses two words to describe the work of the minister. He says, we are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The authorized version uses the word minister, but it is the word uh, servant. It's not simply the word servant, uh, nor is it simply the word slave. If we were to translate this accurately, we would have to use the word under rower. It was used of slaves rowing at the very bottom tier of a Roman galley ship. They were the most uh, menial, uh, undervalued, and despised classes of all slaves. Indeed, it was considered to be a punishment for runaway slaves to serve on a galley ship, just as German deserters were sent to the dreaded Eastern Front during the war, so runaway slaves were sent to the galley ships as rowers. And even on board the ship, insubordination or laziness was punished by being sent to the bottom decks 
below the waterline, cut off from natural light, chained to your position uh, with no toilet facilities and handed a few scraps of bread from time to time. Now that's the term that Paul uses to describe himself and Apollos as ministers of the gospel. He says, we are under rowers for Jesus Christ. And I think there are two ideas that he's trying to convey by using that term. The first is humility. There was, you remember, this sinful tendency among the Corinthians to elevate their favorite preachers at the expense of others and to put certain of their favorite pastors on pedestals. Oh, says Paul, don't do that. We're under rowers for Jesus. We are slaves, servants of Christ. Not just servants of Christ, but slaves of Christ. And we're not simply slaves of Christ. We're galley slaves of Christ. And we're not simply galley slaves of Christ. We are under rowers for Christ. Even in the pecking order of slaves, we are at the bottom of the pile. As a minister of the gospel, Paul had a humble estimation of his own position. He saw himself as a servant of all. Here he is before the Corinthians manifesting a great de- degree of humility. He had much to boast about. Had he not planted the church in Corinth? Had he not instructed the church in Corinth? Was he not an apostle? Did he not write the very words of Scripture? And yet he describes himself as the lowest of all slaves and under rower of Christ. It was St. Augustine who said, for those who would learn Christ's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of humility, it is the chief of all Christian graces. It is the hallmark of the true child of God. If you want to know if somebody is truly converted, you look for this hallmark, this mark of humility. Uh, It's the old doctrine that it's not only gifts that qualifies a person for ministry, it is grace that qualifies a person for ministry. It is the poor in spirit that have a place in the kingdom of heaven. It is the meek who inherit the earth. And if humility distinguishes the true citizen of the kingdom, it surely must distinguish the minister of the kingdom. The servant of God must be a humble servant of God. There's no place for the proud, for the arrogant, for that is a very denial of the Christian gospel. We must empty our hearts of self and fill them with service, with a servant-like attitude. And that, that applies not just to uh, ministers and pastors, but it applies to uh, all Christians. So this term under roar speaks of Humility. Secondly, it speaks of commitment. Slave in New Testament times had no standing and status. He was under the complete authority of his master. Do you remember the centurion who came to Jesus in Luke chapter 7 and asked Jesus to come and heal his servant? And he said to Jesus, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go and he goes and to this one come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this and he does it. There was an immediate, unquestioning, unhesitating response on the part of uh, that soldier or that servant that he describes. 
And he's describing a soldier and a servant. But Paul is speaking about here a slave, and not just a slave, a galley slave, and not just a galley slave, but an under rower on the galley ship. And so there must be this, this unhesitating response in terms of obedience to uh, our, our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the 1800s, there was a, a young uh, Englishman who had gone to California in search of his fortune, and he became very rich on, uh, in the gold rush, and he was coming back then on his way to England, and he stopped off in New Orleans, which was the center of the slave trade, and America hadn't yet banned slavery, although it was banned in England, and he stumbled into a slave auction, and there was this beautiful black young woman who was standing on the podium naked, and the men were ogling her and shouting abusive comments at her and saying what they were going to do with her when they purchased her, and the the, uh, bidding went up and up and up. Uh, to uh, a very high level and eventually the auctioneer when all the other bidders dropped out said going once going twice and just before the hammer dropped the English young Englishman stepped forward and doubled the price that of the last bid and so he took this girl and uh, he took her over to the clerk to sign the papers and to hand over the money she stood before him And in a last act of defiance and self-respect, she spat in his face. And he wiped the spittle away and he handed her her slave papers, which became emaciation papers. He handed them over to her and says, you're free. You're free to go. And out of this great sense of indebtedness, she fell at his feet and said, you have set me free. But I will serve you now uh, as, my, uh, as my master. And that's what the word redemption means, doesn't it? It means it's borrowed from the slave market. It means to set free at a price. We talk about being redeemed by the blood of, of the lamb. Well, we are redeemed. We are set free. That's the purchase price of his blood. And at such a great cost, he has purchased our redemption in order to set us free, but not to free, uh, free to do what we like. We, we fall at his feet and we offer ourselves up as living sacrifices and we declare ourselves as willing slaves to him. After all, it was Jesus who shed his blood, poured out his life, died the death that he died in order to purchase our salvation. Uh, it was the 19th century uh, missionary to India and Persia, uh, Henry Martin, who prayed these words. He says, Lord, let me have no will of my own or consider my true happiness as depending in the smallest degree on anything that can befall me outwardly, but as consisting altogether in conformity to his will. And so this, this word servant or slave or galley slave or under rower speaks of humility of the servant of God and it speaks of the commitment of the servant of God. And, and what is said here specifically of the minister is, is true of, should be true of all Christians that we ought to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices, that we should humble ourselves before God. You remember what Paul said to the Philippians? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, 
who being very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be retained, something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. And taking the very nature of a servant and being found in human appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that wonderful uh, display of humility and servanthood ought to be characteristic uh, of every true Christian. The description of the minister, a servant, secondly, Paul describes himself as a steward, as a steward of the mysteries of God, a steward of the mysteries of God. This word steward there literally means house manager. It was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to describe Joseph's role in Potiphar's house. Remember that Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his household? Uh, That's the idea here. Paul sees himself as one who has been entrusted with a household Not with a household, but with the mysteries of God. And just as Potiphar handed his household over and trusted it to Joseph, so God had entrusted to Paul and to Paulus and to Cephas the secret things of God, the mysteries of God. He had given them insight and understanding to truth. And it was their job to share that understanding and that truth, that mystery with others. You know, you remember, I hope, that mystery in the Bible is not a a secret that uh, is hidden uh, and a puzzle that needs to be solved. But a mystery is something that was hidden in the past, but now has been revealed. And God had revealed this to Paul and to Cephas, Peter, and uh, and to Apollos. They had been given insight into the deep truths of God, the mysteries of God. And just as Joseph gave out the food, the wages, the jobs, as a steward in Potiphar's household, so Paul gave out, he dispensed these great truths, these mysteries of God. He had to give out what the master had entrusted to him. That he sees his role as not inventing something new, but dispensing what is already been deposited what already has been given and that's the chief duty of every minister not to give his own opinions not to uh, give his own impressions not to give his own ideas but as Paul says in the most solemn of terms uh, to Timothy to preach the word to preach the word that the word itself is to be the source of the ministry that the the true minister engages in. Paul says to the Ephesian uh, elders, I did not hesitate to preach to you the whole counsel of God. Everything that God had given to me, I passed on to you. I didn't edit it. I didn't restrict it. I didn't just give you what was palatable. I gave you the whole counsel of God. And uh, the steward, as Paul says there in verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, that they need to be faithful to the Lord. They must be faithful to his word. They must be faithful to their calling and dispense the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. And that's true of you as well. So that God has made a deposit with you, the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that this 
gospel is deposited in jars of clay, weak and fragile, uh, so that the surpassing glory of that treasure uh, might be seen and might be all of, of God. And you have been entrusted with, with the gospel. This great treasure, it's been deposited with you and you are a steward. You are called on to dispense that, to pass that on, to give that out. When did you last speak to somebody about Christ? This week? Last week? Any week? You are called on by God to be faithful to the treasure that he has deposited with you. So here is then the description of the minister. He is a servant, an underroar, humble and obedient. He is a steward, faithful. The second thing I want you to notice then this morning is the danger with the minister. Look at verses 3 and 4. But with me it is very, a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. In verse 3, Paul uh, lists three great dangers that must be avoided when it comes to the minister of Jesus Christ. And the first is a temptation to please his own congregation. The second is to please his own contemporary culture. And the third is to please his own conscience. And he goes on to say that the true servant, the true minister of Christ, must please the Lord. Let's look at those three things. The danger of trying to please the congregation. He says there in verse 3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. One of the great temptations in Christian ministry is to adapt the message to suit the congregation, to be a man-pleaser rather than a God-pleaser. Now, Paul has some hard things to say to these Corinthians. He is about to and has already rebuked them sharply, and he's not sure how they'll react or respond. But he says, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Now, that might seem a bit hard and insensitive to us, but he's simply registering a deep, heartfelt conviction that he could not serve God effectively if he was constantly worried about what people thought of him. Now, that doesn't mean that the servant, the preacher, is above criticism, but it does mean that the minister of the gospel must not let that criticism be the determining factor in what he preaches and how he conducts his ministry. He says to be faithful to the word, to dispense this treasure which has been entrusted, you mustn't fear man. And there are many men in pulpits who will not preach the truth, not because they don't believe it, but because of the fear of the reaction that it would provoke in the congregation. It's always the mark of a false prophet uh, that he preaches what people want to hear rather than what God has said. And often the pleasing preacher is the appeasing preacher because we all love to be loved. Well, he still says, no man ought to be in the pulpit who fears man more than God. No man should be in the pulpit who fears man more than he fears God. 
Hans Havner says, when you're accustomed to standing in the presence of the King of Kings, it doesn't matter uh, whether you're standing between uh, big uh, potentates, because big potentates are small potatoes when you have stood in the presence of King Jesus. You know, on one occasion, Latimer was asked to preach before, Archbishop of Canterbury was asked to preach before Henry VIII. And I'm not sure if he said this audibly or if this was a dialogue that went on in his head that later he uh, revealed to us. But uh, he, he said to himself or out loud, he says, Latimer, Latimer, be very careful what you say. You're standing before the King of England. And then this counter voice came and said, Latimer, Latter, Latimer, be very careful what you say because you're standing before the King of Kings. It is a fact of history that popularity has killed more preachers than persecution. And here's the danger of trying to please the congregation rather than pleasing God. The second danger is trying to please the culture of the day rather than please God. Look at verse 3 again. But with me, it is a very small thing that I shall be judged by you or any human court. Any human court. The authorized version says man's judgment. The phrase literally means and says of human day. Uh, that Paul's referring to his day. We speak of Paul's day. We speak of our day. And what we mean by that is the culture in which we live, the contemporary society. And Paul is saying, I don't care what present culture thinks or contemporary culture says. I preach the treasure that has been entrusted to me. I'm not going to allow uh, that contemporary culture to influence my ministry and the discharge of my duty. There are some preachers who are determined to take into the pulpit the latest survey or the newest trend or uh, to reflect the latest fashion. And under the guise of being relevant, they water down the message to suit the present situation. And we can see that so so evidently in our day and generation. Uh, we think of the whole feminist movement. We think of the LGBT movement and all that woke stuff that is creeping in and churches adapt to try and reflect the culture rather than standing on the Word of God and the sanctity of marriage and the fact that marriage is between a, a, a man and a woman. We are not to allow the world, as J.B. Phillips translates Romans 12, to squeeze us into its mold. But we are to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable and pleasing unto God. So then these are the dangers in service, the danger of pleasing the congregation, the danger of adopting to, uh, uh, adapting to the culture, and then the danger of pleasing our own conscience. Paul says at the end of verse 3, I do not even judge myself. Paul is not saying that he never thought about his ministry and tried to evaluate his ministry. What he's saying that it is very difficult for a servant to make an accurate evaluation of his own ministry. Look at what he says there in verse 4. For I am not aware of anything 
against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. He says, as far as I know, there's nothing, no accusation that can stick against me, as far as I know. But then he says, my estimation is not always to be relied on. The NIV says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Paul knew that his own assessment of himself could be dangerously flawed. He says, as far as I know, my conscience is clear, but my conscience is not perfect. My conscience can be seared. My conscience can be deviled. My conscience is affected by the fall and therefore flawed. People will say, let conscience be your guide. Do you know where that comes from? Let conscience be your guide. Who said it? Jimmy Cricket. And Pinocchio, take the straight and narrow path. And if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, and let conscience be your guide. But conscience is not our guide. It can be useful, but our conscience is flawed because it's fallen and tainted by the fall. Our guide is the Word of God and what God has said and what God has revealed. And the pastor specifically, the church generally, must be not culturally driven, but biblically driven. What does the Bible say and what does the Bible teach? These are the dangers that the servant must avoid of pleasing the congregation, pleasing the culture, of pleasing his conscience. His aim ought to please God. Verse 2 again. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. They must dispense the treasure that God has given to them. The description of the minister, the danger with the minister, and the evaluation of the minister. Look at the end of verse 4 and into verse 5. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. He is not so concerned about pleasing the congregation or pleasing his culture or even his own conscience, but pleasing the Lord. And he looks forward to that ultimate evaluation when his ministry will be weighed by the Lord when the Lord returns. The NIV says he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives. Yes, he says the purposes, the motives of man's heart. You see, we can't make right assessments because we don't have all the evidence because we can't read men and women's hearts. There are things that are hidden from us that we cannot see that can only be seen by God. We can't see motives, why a person does a thing or acts in the way that he does, what drives them, what prompts them. You see, it is possible to serve God with wrong motives and to say things that are right with wrong motives. Paul speaks of those preachers in Philippians 1 and verse 15 who preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. It's possible to preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. 
You see, when you look at me, you say, well, why does he preach every Sunday? Does he preach because he's an employee of the church? Does he preach because he's paid by the church? Does he, he preach because he's a big ego and likes being at the front? Does he preach because he likes to hear himself preach? You don't know what my motives are, but God knows. And God knows what your motives are in the service that you render to God. That This is your little patch. This is your little kingdom. This is your little voice. Now, I think what Paul is teaching here is very important. That on the day of judgment, our motives, why we do things, will be taken into account. What motivates you? That's going to be weighed on the day of judgment. I find that very sobering. And it seems to me, in the Bible, there are two things that ought to motive us, motivate us. One coming from the law of God. One is a love for God, and the other is a love for men. So, uh, you remember Peter in John 21, and the Lord is recommissioning him after his fall. And he says, uh, Peter, do you love me? Uh, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. That his primary motive for the service that he would render and the ministry that he would exercise is his love to Jesus. His love to Jesus. We, in our staff meetings this week, we're working through 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in that powerful verse where Paul says, for the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ. Why put up with it? Because the love of Christ drives me and constrains me and compels me. And then love for men. You know, Paul breathes that love, doesn't he? When he says in Romans chapter 9, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they might be saved. He's just burdened with the conversion of his own kith and kin. You remember Romans 9? Listen, listen to these words. He says that I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Israelites. He's saying, like, I, I, if it was possible... Setting aside the election of God and the regeneration of God. If it was possible, I myself would be cut off. That the Israelites might be saved. Or even ultimately and supremely in our Lord. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. For they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You, can you hear the pathos? And the pain in the voice of our Lord. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to you. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And so these, these two are the ultimate motivation for the service of God. A love for Christ. And if your love for Christ is diminished or waned in any way. There's something radically wrong. It's the love of Christ that compels us. That's our chief motivation. Do you love him? Jesus asked Peter that. Do you love me? And here we are in the presence of God. And he comes to us this morning. And he, he asks us. Do you love me? Is it, is it love that drives you? 
to do the work of serving God, leading worship, leading the older people, teaching in the Sunday school, GBBB. Is it it love to Christ that drives you? And a love for those kids and for those people that they would come to know Christ too. The description of the minister, the danger with the minister, and the valuation of the minister. Amen.